The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He announced, One stronger than I is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open, and the Spirit, like a dove, coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. At once, the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. And good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. It's true, we have put a cap on our series, Pure Trash, about purity culture. Um, If you missed any of those and you really um, want to catch up, we have all of that available, full services on Facebook and YouTube, um, as well as just the audio available on our podcast uh, and our website, which is new. You should check out our new website. I'm very excited about it. But we are, we're moving on, and we are starting a new series going through the book of Mark. We're going to do one chapter a week, uh, but I promise we're not going to be in this series for 16 consecutive weeks, because I think here at Zao we like a little more variety than that. But I'm excited because we're going to kind of take it in chunks, three weeks here, four weeks there, and we're going to move through the gospel of Mark this year. And there are so many important reasons to do that. Um, One is that it helps give us an account of Jesus' life and ministry, and going from beginning to end gives us a different kind of picture than taking out little bits and pieces here and there. But another reason is that we here at Zao are trying to reorient our relationship to the Bible, trying to reclaim the scriptures, especially the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that catalog the life teachings and ministry of Jesus. When we say we're Jesus-rooted, the place that we go to root ourselves in the teachings of Jesus is the scriptures. And so we're doing that together, and we're trying to radically reorient, because so many of us have heard these teachings preached from a dominant perspective, reinforcing status quo, right? 
And we need to move beyond that. We need to go to the heart of things. We need to find the radical brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish Jesus who had a lot to say to us and to liberation. And so while we've been spending some time in theology, that is the teachings about what we believe about God and the implications, we're going to head straight in to the Bible. Now, the Bible uh, has a lot of different accounts of Jesus, and the Gospel of Mark is the shortest. Mark uh, is one of my faves because there's like a real sense of urgency. One of Mark's favorite phrases is, immediately. In, in this translation, it's often uh, kind of softened to like, at once. But there is that kind of like, and now, and then, boom, 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 and then Jesus was there, and then he was here. There's so much plot in Mark that actually there's no way for us to cover each story. So we're going to have to pick one each week. Now, one of the things that's really important when we're reading the Bible is to make intentional decisions about what we pick, what we focus on, what we teach. And that's something that a lot of churches take for granted, right? They just make those choices and then don't tell you why. And uh, you're left to assume that that's the correct choice. That's the correct thing to emphasize. But I want to tell you about the choices that I'm going to be making as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Well, we chose Mark because we want to center Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. But even within those chapters, I have to make choices about what to focus on. And this season, as we are in the book of Mark... I am making those choices with the help of others, with the help of queer colleagues. You see, there is a publication called Unbound, an interactive journal of Christian social justice. And Unbound started a project called Queering the Bible. They put out uh, a commentary this summer on the book of Mark with queer authors interpreting each chapter. I authored chapter six, and it was a real honor, and it was really fun to be a part of. But there are uh, queer voices speaking into the book of Mark, and that's where I'm beginning my interpretation, is from their interpretations every time we do this together this season during this series. Um, and I think that this is really fitting for the book of Mark, because one of the other weird quirks about Mark, other than the like immediately vibe, is that in Mark, Jesus repeatedly tells people that he's healed or come into contact with, like, hey, this has been great. Tell no one. You didn't see me. I wasn't here. It's known as the messianic secret. And a lot of people are like, um, why? Like, <laughs> Jesus, you're like trying to build a movement here. Like, what's your deal? And there have been a lot of different points of speculation. But the one that resonates most with me is people saying, okay, Jesus is doing this very radical anti-empire thing. And at some point, he's going to come into massive conflict with the people in power. But he's trying to actually stay off of their radar until he's ready to do that. And so he's going around doing all this radical work, and people are finding him, and people are becoming part of the movement, but he's like, tone it down, you guys. And so that's why we've called this series Underground. Underground, the book of Mark. Because Jesus is building an underground, anti-empire, radical movement. He's doing it off the radar and against the wishes of those in power. 
And so are the queer theologians in this community and in our world. We are trying to build an underground movement that is contrary to the dominant Christianity that we have found so oppressive. And so I am joined up here every week in this series by the queer theologians and biblical interpreters who have shaped my reading of Mark as I bring it to you. So chapter one, we're starting this week with the reflections of Reverend Benjamin Perry. And in the book of Mark, uh, part of that immediately vibe is just skipping right past the birth story. You may, you may remember from like, you know, Christmas services, there's the whole bit with Mary and the donkey and the angels, right? None of that. Mark doesn't have time. Mark wants to get you right into the action of ministry. But even Mark, who is skipping Jesus' entire birth and childhood, is not going to leave out John. Before Jesus starts his own ministry, Jesus also makes a choice about where to start, how to interpret, where to locate his practice. Now Jesus, being Jesus, could have gone anywhere he wanted, right? So one might assume he would go to the heart of the temple, that he would situate himself in the heart of Jerusalem, in the heart of the halls of power, but he doesn't. He actually leaves the temple. He actually leaves town altogether. He goes to the outskirts where John the Baptist is in the wilderness and has been gathering people and baptizing them in the Jordan River. And it is here that Jesus prepares and begins his ministry of wild liberation. Reverend Perry writes about this. John, likewise, comes bearing a gospel that promises to free all people. Biblical commentators situate John within a long line of prophets condemning Roman exploitation, charismatic zealots who dared to defy the violence of that empire because they served a God who they knew beckoned them toward freedom. John's decision to baptize people in the Jordan River well beyond the reach of the temple and the Roman officials who occupied Jerusalem, is a radically subversive act. It welcomes people into an eschatological foretaste of what it would be like to live beyond them. Now, you may know John the Baptist as the weird one eating bugs and wearing camel hair clothing. (laughs) You're not wrong. But honestly, that wasn't the strangest thing about John or the most interesting The thing that was strange and interesting and threatening and powerful about John the baptizer is that he was building a community, a religious community, a deeply Jewish community, not only outside of the temple, but outside of the city of Jerusalem. I can't emphasize enough how wild it is to be baptizing people, which is a practice, a ritual under the authority of the temple, Not only not in the temple, but not in the city of God, Jerusalem. Out in a river. This is different. This is a direct uh, violation of the authorities of the religious community. This is an act that not only gives people access to something that had been mediated by those in power, but also directly um, kind of thumbs its nose at the authority and says like, your thing isn't legitimate. You think my thing isn't legitimate? My thing's only happening because your thing is so bereft. 
I'm only out here because the temple is so broken. So outside of that institution, they are practicing their tradition. They're not totally abandoning their Jewishness. In fact, they are diving hard into their Jewishness. They're saying, we're going to be even more Jewish than the Jewish folks who are running the temple because they have forgotten their ways. Now, doing this outside of the institution is a, is a really striking thing to do because the temple was built to be the place where all of these things happened. It was supposed to be the safe and sacred place where everyone could gather. It was the heart of Jewish community and religious practice. And it was a beautiful plan laid out by God and the Jewish people to locate the heart of their spirituality in the middle of their lives together. But where it fell apart is where those people in power started collaborating with empire, started working with the Roman Empire, the occupiers of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, started compromising their religious practice for power that was promised by the domination system. And the more they did that, the more the temple itself began to take on those feelings, those practices, those languages of empire. It became a thing that resembled that same system that it had been meant to defy. Economic stratification, power and access for some lorded over many. So many faithful people, many faithful Jews like John the baptizer wanted access to God and community and found that the thing that was supposed to be their source point had become corrupt and or had completely marginalized them, made them cut off from access. They saw that that system had become broken and worldly and so did they give up their faith practice? Absolutely not. They took their faith practice outside of the temple. They took it to the river to the wilderness. Now, they didn't do that alone either. They did it together. And together they were confessing sins, confessing their complicity in empire and repenting of that. They were creating systems of accountability and hope. They were building a dream of what the temple could be. And this is wild because like the temple is something that the Jewish people had fought for and had to defend and had lost over and over again. And one day they would lose it for good. The temple was supposed to be this symbol of access to God. And they had been denied it so long by other empires invading them, destroying their communities, displacing them. So the temple was a source of pride and a source of power. So why didn't John and the other Jewish radicals fight to be in the temple system? Why abandon it altogether and take your community elsewhere? Why not just get a seat at the table and fix it? The problem is that you can fight for something you've been denied so hard, so long. You've wanted it so badly that once you get it, even a little taste of it, you can become really uncritical of what it is and who it serves because it serves you now. I saw this as a community organizer in Chicago in a previous pre-Zao life. There was a kind of living legend of how the power structures kill grassroots organizing and leadership. There was this guy named Danny. Now Danny had grown up where, uh, near where I lived. 
He was an immigrant and a school teacher, and he started organizing the Latinx community. He built this incredible neighborhood organization. It was an organization not unlike the one that I worked for, and that organization was doing really powerful work. Under his leadership, they got citizenship for 12,000 people in the city of Chicago. And they were pushing back hard against the power structures of the city, known in Chicago as the machine. The machine was a pit of vipers, if you ever saw one, full of corruption and scandal, nepotism, bribery. It was a mess. And so Danny was said to have instructed his community members, get angry, kick in doors, force politicians to respond. Danny was setting himself and his community up as outsiders pushing against the powers that be. And he was successful and powerful, strategically brilliant. So how did the power structure take him down? They couldn't catch him in a lie or expose flaws in his personal life. I don't know why. Maybe they just weren't even there. Maybe he was a person of such integrity that they weren't able to do that. So what does power do if they can't undermine an opponent? They promote them and co-opt them. What the machine did was give Danny a seat at the table. The people in power started giving him and his organization friendly wins, things they didn't even have to fight so hard for. They said, you represent such an important constituency. You deserve to be at the table, to have a voice. And this was the dream all along, right? That's what we're fighting for, a seat at the table. And so Danny was swept into the halls of power. And his community organizations started getting recognized more often by power players. They had to tone down their tactics, of course, but, you know, what did that matter? They got a seat at the table. They had won. They were there to negotiate and represent. And then Danny himself got more recognition and power, and with the support of the mayor, he became an alderman. And it wasn't long before he became widely known as being in the mayor's inner circle. Except the mayor sucked. The mayor was not interested in the needs of undocumented immigrants. The mayor was not invested in the educational needs of kids in Little Village or Pilsen. The mayor was not using his power to challenge the existing power structures. He was the existing power structure. And now, Danny wasn't challenging existing power structures either because he was one of them too, just another part of the machine. He became a shill of the mayor. And then, by the time I was an organizer, was just topiary in the political landscape of Chicago. His community organization stopped fighting for radical change. And a couple of years ago, it became public that, like so many other politicians in Chicago, Danny had been engaging in bribery. According to NBC Chicago, he was caught discussing plans to solicit campaign money from a development group that needed his help at City Hall. When we say that Jesus was a revolutionary, one of the things that we mean is that Jesus was not a reformer. He didn't want the people in power to give him a seat at the table. He didn't seek after that. He could have gotten it. He was God. <laughs> this is not like a limitation on Jesus' organizing power. It was not the strategic choice that Jesus made to get a seat at the table of power. 
Jesus instead flipped those tables in those people's faces. <laughs> he preached a theology of equal access to structures of power, which meant bringing those structures to the ground. In the moment of his death, Jesus tore in two the veil that hung at the heart of the temple, the one that was said to separate God from the people. But before he did all of that, he started his ministry among those who had for a long time been outside the temple system. Not rogue loners, but communities of outsiders. People following the teachings of the Jewish scriptures, not into the halls of power of the temple, but out into the wild unknown in search of a new kind of liberation. That's where Jesus begins his ministry. The outskirts, the wilderness, the communities of revolutionary change. We don't build communities on the outskirts just because the institutions don't want us. And like, don't get me wrong, they don't want us. <laughs> but that might not always be the case. And in fact, this has already happened in our denomination and elsewhere in the church around the world. Some people usually in this particular narrative, white, gay, and lesbian people, have become powerful enough that they get seats at the table. Congrats! But you only get to keep your seat at the table if you tone down your tactics. And you need to stop asking for things that are unreasonable. We're going at the pace that we can. You need to stop talking about trans people, please. And for God's sake, stop making connections between queerphobia and racism in the church. These people are asked to publicly profess their gratitude at being included there. And they begin to start talking and acting more and more like the existing power structures every day until they too are part of the machine. This is not to say that reform isn't possible from inside broken institutions at all. But one of the things that I take, one of the lessons that I take from community organizing, one of the lessons I take from John the Baptizer, one of the lessons I take from Jesus, is that we always have to keep one foot in the Jordan River. Jesus doesn't stay in the wilderness forever. He goes in to the synagogue, to the temple, to Jerusalem, to Rome, and he confronts them. But the way that he remains outside is by keeping a one foot, metaphorical foot, in the Jordan River, on the outskirts, in the margins. And you see this with every choice he makes about who to talk to, who to eat with, who to spend time with, who to heal, and how to interpret the words and will of God keeping one foot on the outside, even as you come inside an institution to confront it. Never lose your outsider status. It's a gift. And that is where the real power is. Because the allure of the machine is power. But that power is a lie. That power is the power to assimilate into what is. That power is not holy. The power of the river is to dream and to build what can be. The power of the outsider is prophetic imagination. The power of the outsider builds the kingdom of God. This is not to be done alone. Despite how we imagine the phrase voice in the wilderness, which is associated with this story about John, John was not alone. He was bringing out so many people that Mark actually describes this scene by saying, 
everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John. This is not going off on your own. This is finding other rogue agents. This is building something together without the permission of the institutions that are corrupt and committed to empire. And this is not about abandoning the tradition either. John took the tradition with him when he went to the river, the practice of baptism. And what's wild about it is that it took on new meaning in his new context, powerful enough that it threatened the temple because it showed that the temple and the temple authority did not own Jewish practice, tradition, ritual, belief, or community. It could be found and built and made new on the outskirts by the outsiders. We may find ourselves on the outside longing to be let in. And so long as we are alone doing that, it is very lonely. But rather than fight our way in, what if we follow the call of John, the baptizer, to build communities on the margins and set up camp This is where Jesus chooses to be. Jesus who could have beelined for the halls of power, who could have been the one in charge of the temple, instead chooses to root himself in the community of outsiders at the Jordan and be baptized. And when he does, when he does submit himself to that community of outsiders and let them minister to him, what happens? Scripture says, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open. Remember that veil that is torn in two. The things that separate God from the people are are torn in half. Heaven split open, and the Spirit like a dove coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven. You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you, I find happiness. Jesus receives a blessing and recognition from God. The temple is not going to recognize Jesus or John or all the people at the river seeking after God. The temple and systems of religious power have abandoned them. But Jesus and the community of outcasts bless and welcome one another. And as Jesus practices the rituals of his outcast Jewish Jewish faith, God recognizes him too. You are my son. I love you. And you make me so happy. May we rejoice in our practice on the outskirts. May we reclaim and redefine our rituals and meanings. May we bless and baptize one another. And may we hear the voice of God say, you are my children. I love you. And you make me so, so happy. Will you pray with me? God of the river, God of the people, ground us in ritual and tradition, but uproot us from the institutions and systems of power that have conceded to empire what belongs to you and the people. May we have the hope to step out into the wilderness and find one another and you. May we begin like Jesus on the outside. And even as we confront the systems of this world, 
May we feel the rushing water of the Jordan River baptizing us into freedom, the hope of prophetic imagination, and the community that blesses us. And as we do, may we hear your voice say, I love you, I see you, I bless you, you make me so happy. Amen.